Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. This is Lesson 6 for the first quarter for Sabbath, February 5, 2022, and it's titled, Jesus, the Faithful Priest, and it's from the quarterly, In These Last Days, the Message of Hebrews. And the memory text is Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. This lesson study is called the faithful priest, but we'll see on Sunday a priest on behalf of humans. Monday, it's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Tuesday, it's titled an effective priest, but it's really talking about change of the law. Wednesday, it's titled an eternal priest, and that is really talking about the new covenant. And then Thursday is a sinless priest, a priest that's holy, harmless, and undefiled. So let's go through these as quick as we can. Now, Sunday is a priest on behalf of human beings. This idea that the priest was taken from men and appointed for men. We see that in Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest was taken from among men and is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. This idea of the high priest being one of us is important, and I don't think we can understand the full extent of the importance, but Hebrews does have several things that we can see why it would be important priests would be taken from among men. First one is that he can have compassion on men, particularly our ignorance and waywardness. We'll see in Hebrews 5 too. it says he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. And that going astray is like led away or deceived by Satan, and he's also subject to weakness. So he's subjected to the same kind of temptations. In Hebrews 2.18, it says, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Hebrews 5.8 is another one. It says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So he is here learning obedience just as we are learning to trust God and being tempted. So then he can have compassion as a high priest because he's in the same boat as we are. It's also in Hebrews 5, 7, it says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered a prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. That reminds me of Moses Moses interceded for the people when he was up on the mountain and they were making the golden calf and he didn't even know exactly what they were doing, but God was ready to destroy the people and Moses pled for them. And so as the high priest coming from us, understanding us, these tears are going to be more genuine because he is really pleading as one of us. It's like having a lawyer or being that representative, being one that's just like you. If you have a political representative that has to live in your neighborhood, they understand the things that are going on. And so this is why he can really relate to us and he can be an advocate for us because he really understands and the other thing is, is that he not only lives on this earth as us, but he also dies here and he dies a death that's similar to our death. And the purpose of this death, several things that it accomplishes, and let's just go through these. One, it sets an example for us. It frees us from the fear of death. In Hebrews 2.14, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
and release those who through fear of death were in all their lifetime subject to bondage. So what is this saying? We had talked about this before. We don't have to live in fear of death. He went before us. He was perfect and he still died. And we know that we're going to die. If someone is threatening you with death or threatening your child or your spouse with death, which is, I think, even worse, then you're almost ready to give up everything. But, you know, when Daniel's companions were threatened with the fiery furnace, if they didn't worship another god, and Daniel himself was threatened with the, the lion's den, which was almost sure death, these are things that we don't have to worry about because we know that this life isn't the only life. We know that Jesus has gone on before us and so it really is freeing us from this bondage to be tempted by this fear of death. And we don't need to live under that anymore. So he set an example for us by dying first, by setting the way. His death also accomplishes something else. It sets the new covenant in force. This is described in Hebrews 9, 16 to 20. It says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Now, this is pointing back to Exodus when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and the Lord met with him there and spoke to all the people on that great day of the assembly. And immediately after that, Moses came down, he wrote all those words, the, the words of the covenant in a book, and he called it the book of the covenant. And then he had this little ceremony. If you're not familiar with that section, I encourage you to look at one of our YouTube videos, The Exodus Encounters, and you'll see that there was a ceremony that he performed, right? Hebrews is just describing that ceremony where he ratified the covenant with the blood. They had a sacrifice there. He sprinkled in the blood on all the people. So it's kind of like a ratification ceremony. And so Hebrews is just saying that Jesus' death serves that purpose as that setting in the covenant. It's, it's now sealed with his blood. And so his blood then becomes symbolic of that covenant. And we'll see that this is reflected in the Passover ceremony in Mark 14, where Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is giving a Nazarite vow at a Passover ceremony called the Last Supper. And he is saying, this is my blood. Wine then becomes the symbol of the blood, and his blood is the symbol of this new covenant. Now, even with the new covenant, and even with our acceptance, it still requires sanctification. So there's this other component to it. We need to be sanctified to come in communion with the Holy God. And so his death also allows him to ascend to the right hand of the Father and to assume this role of high priest to offer us sanctification. So he's now ministering in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. Hebrews 9, 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's that cleansing. That's that atonement. 
Hebrews 9, 21 to 23, then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So this is contrasting the earthly sanctuary, which was cleansed by blood, with the heavenly sanctuary, which has better sacrifices. What are these better sacrifices? Well, Jesus's death becomes symbolic of that atonement. We'll go back to Mark again in Mark 14, 22 and 23, where it says, since they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. So now his body is symbolic of the atonement. So the body or the bread is to be symbolic of the atonement and the sanctification. And these are all the new symbols defined at Passover. And there's a last thing that his death does. And this is also something I don't think we fully understand, but it allows the Holy Spirit to be sent to us. In Mark 1, 8, it says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is John the Baptist talking. And then in John 16, 7, we read, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So not just is he up in heaven ministering as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, but he's also sending this helper here. Now, there's just one other aspect of this high priest being from among man, and that's that he's ordained by God. And it says in Hebrews 5, 4 through 6, it says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glory himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the high priest is not an inherited position. It's a role that's chosen and ordained by God himself. Just as God called Aaron, Aaron was the first high priest for the tabernacle that was set up. He also calls Christ. And he's the one that says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And in Hebrews 7, 3 and 7, 6, we also see when it's talking about this Melchizedek character, which we'll go into in Monday's lesson, but it says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. And in verse six, it says, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. The main point here is that this Melchizedek high priest is not from the Levitical line. It's like he doesn't have an origin and he doesn't have an end. So it's not a role that he's inherited because of genealogy, because of his father, his mother. It's, it's like he just appears and comes before Abraham. He comes before the Levitical line even exists. And we'll see that. Let's go into Monday's lesson. According to the order of Melchizedek, this is a high priest, but also a king. Now, who was Melchizedek? He was a real historical figure. He was a priest who blessed Abram after he came back from conquering the surrounding nations. And that could be found in Genesis 14. I'll just read 17 and 18. It says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedalomir, and there the kings who were with him. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of the God Most High. 
So Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram with this bread and this wine, and he blesses him. But Melchizedek, it says, was a priest of God Most High. That's Elyon, which is Most High, the Elyon El. And who is this Elyon El? Well, well, we'll see in that same chapter that Abraham, he's raised his hand to the Lord Most High God. So it's Yahweh is this Elyon El. Now, what is this Melchizedek? So Melech is king and Sedek means right hand or just or moral. So this is a king of righteousness. This is a righteous king. And you think about it, God never intended for the king and the kingdom to be separate from the priesthood. I mean, in his kingdom, it really is a theocracy. The only reason why he sent the children of Israel a king is because they were clamoring for it because they saw all the other nations around them and they said, we want a king, we want a king. But it was never to be like that. God's intent was to have this righteous king, priest, high priest combination character. And that's what we get with this Melchizedek. He's a priest king. And as that, he's not just a high priest, but he's also got this other role of being a king. And we'll see that when we read in, in Psalms 110, 1 through 7, Psalm of David, it's really describing this Melchizedek or this king character. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. This is that character. This priest king is the rod of strength. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. And so we see with this strength and with this power that's coming from, ultimately it's coming from the Lord, but it's going to execute, it's going to be, executing judgment over the kings of the earth. What does that mean? It's this Melchizedek high priest king character is also a king of king and a lord of lords. And there's going to be a judgment call for the kings of the earth and those who lead others astray and become in league with Satan. There's going to be a judgment against them. So when we see this combination of a high priest and a king that can execute judgment even over other kings and other rulers, then we recognize the importance of having, of this king really having an understanding of people and, and having mercy and being able to relate and to be able to distinguish, okay, who is ignorant, who was misled, who was deceived, and who are the deceivers and those who were in league with Satan to deceive the people. So this combination of this high priest king needs to have both of those characteristics. Now, Tuesday says an effective priest, and I like to call this a, like a high priest that's above the law. We say, who's above the law? Well, in this case, we're going to see what the law is and how this high priest is above the law. Now, Hebrews 7.12, it says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So what is this law? Well, you know, in the Greek, there's only one word for law. In the Old Testament, 
there's a lot of different words. There's Torah, there's mitzvah, there's koke, there's, there's precepts and judgments, and there's all these different words that are used. But in Greek, there's just one word, law. And we'll see in the New Testament, there's a lot of different uses for that law. Sometimes it's referring to the law of men. Sometimes the commandments of men, the, the, the law of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they changed God's law into their own commandments of men. Sometimes it's a law that's referring to the Ten Commandments. And we see that when Jesus speaks about the law and then he starts taking and naming the Ten Commandments. So there's a lot of different uses for law in the New Testament for that word. So the surrounding texts need to be used to explain which law it's talking about. And in the New Testament, there's always there's always surrounding text that explains it. So all you have to do is look at the explaining text and you can see what law it's really talking about. Well, in Hebrews, all the time that it's mentioned law, at least all the times that I could find, every mention of law in Hebrews, it's referring to the laws concerning the priesthood and their work in the tabernacle. It's not referring to what we consider the Ten Commandments. It's not referring even to the commandments of men um, it's not referring to their statutes and their civil laws. It's, it's referring to specifically to the laws that pertain to the priesthood and the tabernacle and how the tabernacle was set up, how the priesthood was ordained, and how the priests were to minister in the sanctuary. That is the law it's talking about. And what was this law? This was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. If you go back and watch that YouTube video about the encounters on Mount Sinai, you'll see that there was the fourth encounter was very unique. So the third encounter when Moses went up to the mountain, that was the great day of the assembly. That's when the Lord came down. He spoke to the people. He spoke terms of a covenant. He gave them also some judgments. But the fourth time, that fourth encounter was just to Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders. They were to come out with Moses and the rest of the people were to stay at the camp. They were to come to the base of the mountain. Only Moses went up, but he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the only thing given to him besides he was given the tablets of stone, but that was because the covenant was already ratified. But what was given to him on that mountain was all the Torah mitzvah. It was all the law and the commandments that pertained to the tabernacle, to the building of the tabernacle, to how to ordain the priest who was going to even oversee the building of the tabernacle, all the instructions for the furnishing of the tabernacle, the table of showbread, the lampstand, everything, and all the sacrifices. And that was all given to him on that fourth encounter. And this is the law that is talking about in Hebrews. When it says law, it's talking about that mitzvah Torah that he gave him on that fourth encounter, which is all about the tabernacle service. There's a lot of texts. I'm not going to read them all because it's all throughout Hebrews. It's explaining that's what that law is. And if you don't believe me or you do believe me, go back and look and just read Hebrews and see if every time it's mentioning law, that's not what it's talking about. So in Hebrews 7.28, for example, it says, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. So here the law is appointing as high priest. What law appoints high priests? It's that law that pertains to the tabernacle services. 
Hebrews 8, 4, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer those sacrifices according to the law. Which law? The law that governs how to do the, all the sacrifices. Hebrews 10, 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. And then in parentheses, now that's just quoting from the Old Testament, but in parentheses, in, in my translation, I think it's a new, new King James Version, it has parentheses and it says, which are offered according to the law. So in Hebrews, it's saying all these sacrifices and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, which are offered according to the law. So what law governs all those? That's that law that governs the sacrifices and the burnt offerings and, and the whole tabernacle services. Okay, so now we know what the law is. So now what's the change of the law? Well, the change is now that Jesus will be the high priest. It's not going to be the Levitical high priest anymore. It's going to be Jesus as sitting at the right hand of the Father being the high priest. And he's going to now minister, but not in the tabernacle that's on earth, but in the real tabernacle in heaven. There's going to be no longer a need for this earthly sanctuary that was just to be a shadow we can read that in hebrews 8 1 and 2 it says now this is the main point of the things we are saying we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the lord erected and not man and then going on in hebrews 9 it's the same thing starting at verse 1 then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary so see it's talking about the ordinance of the divine services of this earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared the first part which was a lampstand the table the showbread which is called the sanctuary and behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all and really all of hebrews chapter 9 is just describing the tabernacle is describing what was given to Moses, the instruction given to Moses on that fourth encounter. So this is what it's talking about. And it's Hebrews is really saying this is this was just a pattern. This is not going to be forever and this is not going to be anymore. And there's passages, not just here in Hebrews, but throughout the Bible that give us hints that the earthly tabernacle services are just temporal. They were only time limited and that they're not the real thing. So, for example, in Hebrews 9, verse 10, it says, it's concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So what does that mean? Fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. What is that time of Reformation? That's the only time that I found in the Bible that that word Reformation is used. And that Greek word is de orthosis. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that meaning is of straightness. So it's the time of straightness. So even if we don't know what that time of straightness is, we know that these washings and these foods and drinks all these sacrifices that were made were only to be until that time we also see evidences in the prophets and daniel when he talks about the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering so there's some point in time when sacrifice and offering is going to cease the interesting thing is ellen white also in life sketches 
mentions that when the children of Israel had the law, it says God gave them his law, but they would not obey it. He then gave them ceremonies and ordinances that in the performance of these, God might be kept in remembrance. Had they been obedient and loved to keep God's commandments, the multitude of ceremonies and ordinances would not have been required. And this is really interesting that she says this, because if you go back to the encounters on Mount Sinai, when the Lord met with the people, that was the third encounter that he discussed the covenant. And it's not until they rejected that covenant that he gave them, that he told Moses, okay, you come back up again with Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders, and I'm going to give you instructions for the tabernacle. It wasn't until after they had rejected the covenant, because what they did is he met with the people and he wanted to he wanted to make this covenant with the people. He wanted to speak directly to them. He told the people to come out to the mountain and he was going to speak directly to them. And while he's speaking to them, the people are saying, okay, we don't want to hear anymore. We can't, we can't hear God directly. We can't hear this. We're going to die. And so they told Moses, look, you go to God, you find out what he wants. We'll do everything he wants, but you go to him. We can't hear him because we're going to die because they knew their hearts weren't sanctified and they knew that they didn't want to hear. They didn't want to obey. And so right then, right at that moment when they said, Moses, you go, you go and you talk to the Lord, even though the Lord had come out, specifically called all the people to meet with him, that he wanted to speak to them directly. It was at that point that the Lord knew that these people were not, they didn't want to be in on this covenant. They said they wanted to do everything that the Lord said, but then they didn't want to hear it. So how do you, how do you hear and obey? How do you shema, shema, call the the voice of the Lord if you don't want to listen? So, so right there, they were rejecting this covenant and this covenant relationship as a people. I'm sure there were individuals in there that were all into it. But as a people, they were rejecting it. And it wasn't until that, that, that the Lord set up the tabernacle services and said, okay, Moses, you come up next time and I'll give you this other information. So it's really interesting that Ellen White says this. And it seems to be that that's how it was, that, these, that this earthly sanctuary might not have had to been had the people been willing to listen to God. And then we see in Hebrews 8, 5, that it's just a pattern, a copy, who serves the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So it's just quoting what the Lord had told Moses. He tells him how to do this tabernacle, and he says, make sure you do everything according to this pattern. Hebrews 8, 2, it says, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And in 9, 11, it says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. So here we see that the tabernacle that was on earth was not the true tabernacle, but there is a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And that's the one in heaven. And then the other hints that we see about this earthly tabernacle is that throughout the Bible, there's all these references that it's not the blood of bulls and goats that does the sanctification. In fact, even when the Lord met with Moses on the mountain, 
and gave him all the instruction for the tabernacle and the priesthood and how they were to be sanctified and how the blood was to be sprinkled to purify them and the bread was to be purified and they were to eat the bread and all those instructions for the sanctuary services. At the very end, he says, yeah, and remember my Sabbath that I am the Lord that sanctifies you. And that's in Exodus 31, 13 it says, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so after all this description about all these sacrifices and offerings in the end, the Lord is the one who sanctifies in Hebrews seven nineteen it says for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law, meaning these sacrifices, they didn't make anything perfect, but there's something better. Um, Hosea 6.6, 6, it says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. We see this even in these prophets, that they knew that the, the sacrifices were not the end all, that the sacrifices were not really what God wanted, and they weren't bringing in the sanctification. Hebrews 10, 5 through 9, we say, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin had, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had any pleasure in them which are offered according to law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So he, in Hebrews it says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. And these are just quotes from the Old Testament, but we can see the point of Hebrews is that this earthly sanctuary service is not going to be anymore. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The second being that heavenly sanctuary. And we can read that in Psalms 46 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. Okay, well, that's different. That's not in Hebrews. But actually, Hebrews does talk about that law in your heart. Because that brings us into the covenant, the new covenant. So let's go on to Wednesdays, which is eternal priest. And I really think Wednesday's lesson is about the high priest and the mediator of the new covenant. Now we already saw that Hebrew mentions this new and better covenant in 722. It says, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And Hebrews 8, 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And this better covenant is faultless. Hebrews 8, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But as we'll see, the first covenant might have had fault. But where was the fault? The fault was not in the covenant itself but it's in those who would not enter into it. It was in the people. And we can read that in multiple places. Hebrews 8, 8, it says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. It doesn't say he disregarded the covenant. He disregarded them because they would not continue in his covenant. And then in the next verse, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, Hebrews 8 here, these verses that we just read, is just quoting from Jeremiah. So this is nothing new. Jeremiah the prophet had already talked about this new covenant and writing God's laws on their hearts. It's a covenant that's different because this time the people enter into it. This time they are going to continue in the covenant. The first covenant they didn't even want to enter into from the very beginning. And they didn't enter into it. And that's the fault of that first covenant. Not that there was anything wrong with the covenant from God's mouth. It was man's reaction to it. And the good thing is that that covenant is going to become obsolete. That first covenant that disobedience in Hebrews 8.13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And in Hebrews 9, starting at the very first verse, it says that indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. And then just Hebrews 9, just the whole thing is describing the tabernacle. So when it's talking about this new covenant and something becoming obsolete and growing old, it's talking about these earthly tabernacle and its services. People get really confused with this. They think that this law and something that's been done away with, they think it's the Ten Commandments or they think it's feast days or they think it's all the rest of the stuff that the Lord spoke. It has nothing to do with that. It's talking about the sanctuary services. It's very clear in Hebrews that that is what it's talking about that's been growing old and becoming obsolete because it was only needed for a period of time. And the real sanctuary has always been in heaven, the real tabernacle, the real ministering on behalf of the people and the atonement and all that is all happening in heaven. It was just a pattern here to show us the process of what goes on. And then in Hebrews, it's saying that this is now not needed anymore. Jesus is this mediator of this new covenant. Hebrews 12, 24 says to Jesus, a mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And 9, 15, it says, and that for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And we already saw that it's his blood that ratifies this new covenant. Hebrews 9.18, therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And Hebrews 9.20 saying, this is the blood of the new covenant which God has commanded you. So that's just quoting again the Old Testament. But we already saw that through the death of the testator, this covenant becomes ratified. So the first one had an actual sacrifice of a bull, I believe, and it was a burnt offering and they took the blood and they sprinkled it on the people and on the book of the covenant and said, okay, this is the covenant. So what it's saying is this second covenant, this new covenant is not, doesn't need to have that ceremony done. It's done through 
the death of Jesus. And that's the blood that is ratifies this covenant. So there doesn't need to be the ceremony anymore. The sacrifices are going to be done away with. They are being done away with right here. This is what Hebrews is saying. There's going to be no sacrifices after this point. There doesn't even need to be a sacrifice for this new covenant. And like all oaths and covenants, violating this is serious. Hebrews 10, 29 says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. You know, the reason why these covenants are ratified with blood, it's, it's symbolic of, you know, I am going to keep this over my dead body. You're going to keep something to the point of death. You will still keep it. So that's why these covenants are ratified with blood. And so when you, disregard the covenant what you're really doing is you're you're really just killing you're killing yourself really it's just it's a serious thing and we can see that this new covenant is different i think we already mentioned this because it's going to be the people are going to enter into it hebrews 10 to 16 this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days says the lord i will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds i will write them This is just directly quoting Jeremiah, but this is what this new covenant is all about, that he's going to put his laws into our hearts and into our minds. And the people are going to keep them because it'll be part of them. And then God will be able to keep his end of this covenant. Hebrews 10, 17, it says, and he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Hebrews 10, 18, the next verse. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And this is just like in the Day of Atonement when the sanctuary was cleansed. That's the final atonement. There should not have to be any sacrifices after that. All the sins have been transferred. And on the Day of Atonement, the sanctuary is cleansed. Those sins are taken away. God is going to remember them no longer. And there should no longer be an offering for sin. And in Hebrews 10.26, it says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, there should not have to be anything after that point in time. And that brings us into Thursday's lesson, which is a sinless priest, a holy priest, holy, harmless, and undefiled, as our memory text 726, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. With this Thursday's lesson, what I really want to emphasize is just that, yes, Jesus is a sinless priest. He's high, holy, harmless, and undefiled. But the whole reason for that is so that he can minister on our behalf as the high priest so that he can make us holy, harmless, and undefiled, so that he can offer to us to be sons of God. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law and we know what law that is, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Well, what is able to make those who approach perfect? What is able to cleanse us and sanctify us? That is this minister of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle. And it's also that we can become sons of God. Hebrews 10.10, it says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus, body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is a permanent sanctification. This doesn't require yearly sacrifices or anything of the sort. And it says in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So this is a true permanent sanctification. And so with this, the new covenant objective has really been achieved. This was foretold by Hosea the prophet. We can read that in chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or number, and it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. See, the whole point of all this and the ministering of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary is so that we can become sons of God. And this old covenant, when the Lord had to say, you are not my people, now he's going to say, you are my people, you are sons of the living God. So the new covenant objective will have been achieved. We will be worshiping God, following God, obeying God, listening to God, hearkening to God and calling him God, respecting him as our God, and we will be his people, and he will be protecting us and calling us sons of the living God. Now for our second part of this, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 6, and it's very fitting after talking about the new covenant and how we are going to be sons of the living God. This is a very good chapter to read. So I'm reading Hebrews chapter 6 from the New King James Version. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of the faith toward God, of the doctrines of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those who for whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you would show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, 
where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at sabbathschoolgems at gmail.com. Bye for now.